Well, hello and welcome to the first ever We Are Imps podcast. Over the course of this season, we'll be speaking to a number of players, both past and present, and those leading the club from the sidelines. Our first guest needs little introduction. A distinguished playing career saw him feature for a number of high-profile clubs, including Manchester City, Wolves and Liverpool, where he became the most expensive teenager in British footballing history, not to mention making 34 appearances for his country island. But perhaps most importantly, he is now the head coach here at Lincoln City. It is, of course, Mark Kennedy. Mark, delighted to have you on the podcast, our first ever guest. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here and it's much appreciated. Uh, I want to get straight into it. That most expensive teenager in British footballing history tag. Not many players get to boast that accolade. For you at the time, was it a burden or was it something you were proud of? Something I never really thought about, to be honest. Um, something that didn't really play on my mind, prey on my mind. But if I was to pick either side to fall on, I suppose, um, I'd ultimately be very proud of it. Um, I kind of get a little bit embarrassed by it now. Why I don't know, but it's not something I talk about or think about. You're 18 years old at the time. I believe it was £2.3 million, correct me if I'm wrong. What is going through your head when something of that magnitude takes place for such a young man? Um, I just loved football. Nothing, believe it or not, nothing really. I just loved football. I was a Liverpool fan. Um, I'd actually been to Anfield a few months previous. There was a, a, an Irish, I think it was classed as a, I think it was classed as a B team game or a 23s game. And it was at Anfield and I specifically went to watch the game. One, because it was Ireland, but more so because it was Liverpool. And to see what Anfield was like, because um, I had a feeling something was going to happen. Um, but I just loved football. I just wanted to play football. I didn't care. I was just really, really proud the first time I ever, ever put on a Liverpool jersey. That you weren't wearing a kit that you'd wear as a fan. You were wearing the kit of the club. You were you were part of that. And ironically, it was actually a, a reserve game because it was a few days after I got to the club. That was probably the thing I remember the most, just being really proud of that, to be able to wear a Liverpool jersey. So many people want to be a footballer, but not many get to be one. For you, was it a case of, I always want to make it professional? I always want to do this as a living? Or is it was it something you ended up just falling into? No, um, really good question. Uh, no, I, I never grew up wanting to be a footballer. I just loved football. So my eldest boy, Pep, um, he's the, you know, we all obsessed with our kids and he's, he's an amazing little boy. He's desperate to be a footballer. It, it's all he asked me. And I try and talk to him about education and completely different things and talk to him about, um, you know, my family, his, uh, my wife's family, about what they do and stuff like that. Whereas when I was his age, I just loved playing football. I didn't want to be a footballer. I didn't have dreams of I'm going to go to England or anything. I just played football all day, every day, just because I loved it. Was it difficult to comprehend playing for such a big club at such a young age? And particularly, okay, yes, there was no social media, no necessarily mobile phones taking videos and photos of you when you're out. When you were out, which I'm sure you would have done at that age, did you know and did you remember who you were playing for and just how many people knew you? Because it must be so difficult for such a young person to to kind of gauge that. Um, yes. Um, sorry. The reason I'm pausing is I was quite reckless. I was re particularly when I went to Liverpool. Um, 
I was very reckless and it's probably had a little bit of a detrimental effect on me now. Um, I, I don't speak to anybody in interviews. I constantly turn people down. I just want to be left alone. I just want to be me. I just want to be a normal person, which I am. I'm not famous in any way, shape or form. But back then, you couldn't go anywhere without somebody seeing you. Or if you, I, I'm really aware of myself and really aware of other people and very observant. So I'd walk into a bar, a restaurant, an environment, and I'd be looking to see if somebody was looking at me, which I really didn't like. And if you walked into a room with 10 people or 100 people, and nine or 99 may not have a clue who you are, but there's always one. So by the end of it, everybody knows who you are. And I didn't enjoy people looking at you, talking about you. And I found that um, not unnerving, but I didn't enjoy it. And it's probably one of the reasons I am the way I am now, which is actually not a good thing. Because it's important, I think, that when you're a head coach at a club, it's important I promote the club. You're the face of the football. It's important you put yourself out there. It's important you speak um, about people you work with the club because the club does so many brilliant things and I've probably turned down too many opportunities where I probably could have helped the club and stuff like that so that's something I have to have a, have to change so um, but I was probably reckless as a young man you know I I don't mind admitting this I'm, I'm open to helping people and educating out like I'd go out on a Friday night and play in the Premier League on a Saturday you know I've done that before so and I and I'd go to a pub in Liverpool that was full of Liverpool fans. It's like insane when you think about it now. So not very good. And um, I remember speaking to a manager that I worked with before, somebody I'm very close with, and I was kind of sitting some players down. I was kind of having a go at them, and da da da. da. And when they left, like the gaff was like, "Spark, you do realise what you put me through when you were a player?" Because he was also my international manager. And I was like, "Yeah, but I don't want them to be like me." I'm saying don't be Mark Kennedy. I've worked at clubs and I've said to players, don't be a Mark Kennedy. So if I can help people with that, and it was only when I said that to him, he was like, oh, okay, that, I've, I get where you're thinking. But he was saying, can you understand what I'm thinking? So finding that balance. It's so interesting what you say there, because in one sense, you almost have a bit of an oxymoron, don't you? You've got the, the recklessness that you've mentioned, but also that self-awareness and getting the balance right between being self-aware and being out in public and having all eyes on you. But then I guess win, draw or lose, you need those moments where you go out and you let loose and you act your age and you're with like-minded people. You're with people that also want to to drink and, and have a laugh. Getting the balance right must have been very difficult. And for you, it's interesting that you're admitting there that I'm guessing the recklessness aspect suggests that you didn't get it right as much as you would have liked to. Now I got it completely wrong, but I was just a normal lad from Dublin doing normal things. I didn't look at myself as um, a professional. I, I understand what professional is. I understand what elite is. When I was 18, I, I didn't because I was just Mark Kennedy, a young, normal human being from Dublin with incredible family who were just humble down to earth and didn't see themselves on a pedestal. I was just a normal everyday guy. Um, what I failed to recognize or work with or accept was actually, you're not. You're actually a high profile person working for in an incredibly um, lucky environment, a privileged environment. And you actually need to be a lot more responsible and you're actually a role model to people. What I would like to say or like to think is 
that although I did reckless things, which probably hindered my own um, career, you know, I never fell out with anybody. I never had a fight with anybody. I never disrespectful. I never spat on anybody. I was never rude to people. I was always a really, really nice person, but probably doing the wrong things. And, and not all the time because I had a pretty decent career, which you can't have. Um, but I definitely did things and definitely made loads and loads of mistakes for sure. And ironic that I guess the the one thing that if you were to, to, to Google your name and go back far enough and people of an age, certainly perhaps my age and younger than myself wouldn't necessarily remember. But the one time that something quite serious happened to you was actually something that you didn't necessarily do yourself. It wasn't through any particular fault of your own. If you could just, could you tell us a little bit about A, what happened and B? I'm laughing to myself here because I've been involved in quite a number of things that weren't my fault, which I can, and I'm happy to talk about any of them. You need to tell me which incident you're talking about. <laughs> so I'm talking about what happened with Ireland. Right. Phil you. Bab. Yeah. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're out and you're out in Dublin and Phil Bab does what was called a death Tell me the word. I've forgotten a the death de stump man. A death stump man. And for that reason, you both ended up getting arrested. We did, yeah. And you, after then, were not able, you had to pull out of the island squad. I'm right in saying, aren't I? A little bit more than that. So it, the irony of the story is the, the whole team was out and we had a curfew. And Babsy and I left everybody to go back to the hotel. And to make the curfew, when I say everybody, I'm assuming somebody might come around and say, well, actually, I was in bed. But pretty much everybody was out. And Babsy and I decided to go back um, go back to the hotel. And uh, we're on our way back. And, and I've never, ever, I've never, ever said openly, because we were like front page of the paper, page two, three, four, back page. If there was 40 pages in the paper, we were on 35 of them. But I've never openly said who done what and who done that. And I never will because it's, it's, it's been and gone. But what I've always said is I, I didn't do I didn't get on a car. I wasn't on a car. But anyway, it, it, the irony of it all is and it, it's, it's it quite a serious thing to happen, but it's almost farcical. It happened outside Hardcore Police Station, which is arguably the biggest police station in Dublin. And it was right outside a Bangarda security box. And... And for the unfortunate lady, she I think she'd parked her car literally outside. And, um, you know, incident happened. There was some damage done to her car. Never gone away from that. And there was three or four lads some way down the road who were walking up and knew who we were. And they were like, they, they, they've damaged your car. Da, da, da. And I suppose I didn't help myself in this situation because I'm a pretty black and white guy. And I was like, when the police were talking to us, I was like, I suppose I didn't help myself. I was a bit non-cooperative because I was thinking, I haven't done anything, so I, there's no point talking to me. And within a very short period of time, I was actually the one sat in the back of the police car and they're chatting to Babsy outside. But we just didn't expect what happened to happen. Before we knew it, it was 10 in the morning the next day. We're still in a holding cell. We then walk up through the holding cell into a courthouse. And when we got up the top of the stairs, it was absolutely jammed like there wasn't a spare seat in the house and i suppose the seriousness of the situation didn't quite hit home then it was only later on we got back we had to do um we had to do media and i went straight into the boss into into mick to explain what had happened and you know 
we're going to have to leave you out of the audience. And I think we were playing Holland and Portugal. It was like a massive double header. And I just remember saying to Mick, well, I, I haven't done anything. And he was like, what happened? I said, like, you know, I'm sure you'll speak to Phil. I was forced in, but I was like, Gaffer, I haven't done anything. I was, I was actually on my way home. But the manager explained his reason, said what he said, private conversation. I was like, no problem, I can I can handle that. My biggest disappointment, or if I could change anything, was when we went to court and the CEO of Manchester City was in in the, in with their solicitors and that, like I was refusing to plead guilty because I hadn't done anything. So I was like, I'm not pleading guilty, I haven't done anything. But then we had to weigh up the options of uh, if you plead not guilty, you're going to come back, you're going to have a trial by jury, you're going to put your parents through all this, you really hope high profile. So I actually pled guilty. So the bottom line is, as it stands, well, ultimately the judge kind of said to us, you're wasting my time, pay a fine and get out of my sight. And that was ultimately the end of it. But I did feel genuinely remorseful for the whole situation because it shouldn't have happened. Um, not fair on my family, not fair on so many people. Um, and also particularly the lady who was involved with it because it can't be nice what she had to go through and stuff like that. So it's just in a, a situation that it was a prank basically that went wrong. I'm just trying to transfer that to the modern day. And do you think now as a manager and a manager of this club, if if one of your players was to go through a similar situation, do you think you would be able to show a little bit more empathy and I know you were close and are close with Mick but Mick McCarthy but you think you'll be able to to say well, okay look it's not great what's happened you shouldn't have done it but you can show that bit of empathy to say look you're a young lad and these things happen a million percent but that's that's my that's my personality so irrespective of what I've been through or what I've experienced everybody makes mistakes uh, myself yourself Young Alfie's in the room. We've all made mistakes. Nobody's an angel. Nobody's perfect. We're human beings. We're not robots. So I'm a huge believer in, I say it quite a lot, no one's died. Get on with it. We all make mistakes. The most important thing is is we learn from them. I had a conversation with my son a few weeks ago. Something really, really small happened and I picked him up in it and he burst into tears and I was trying to explain to him that as much as it was wrong, I said, I'm glad it's wrong. I'm glad you've done this. For two reasons. One is, you know, I love you more than anything in the whole world. And two is, how are we going to learn? It's not going to happen again. So I've never been involved in a car accident again or a situation. But I think it's so important to give people a break. The, the, the world is so negative. Everybody's looking for negativity, whether it's social media. Like the news should be called bad news. You know, whenever you put the news on, it's just bad news. It's all you're... That, I'm not on social media for that reason. That's just... I hope we don't kill this podcast, by the way. But. As long as they don't call it bad podcast. No. I mentioned Mick McCarthy there. He was the first person to sign you, wasn't he? Back in back back from Millwall. You were 16 years old. Am I right in saying? How much of an influence has he been on your career? And how much of an influence is he now on your career? Um, huge. I played golf from last week. Um, so massive. Um always remained in touch. I mean, to be fair, to, I'm still calling him Gaffer. To be fair to the Gaffer, like I had three years with him at Millwall, then seven years with Ireland. Then he came to Ipswich when I was there. So actually in my career of football in England, he's probably been involved in 75, 80% of it. And what the biggest thing I'm proud of now with the Gaffer is that, you know, when I met him, I, I, I was a 16 year old, probably immature boy. And he was a real father figure to me. He's an incredible example as a person. 
um, and a professional to 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 anybody. He's an incredible, credible guy. But the biggest thing I'm proud of now is that I, I look at him and I'm sure he looks as me as a, as a really good friend. And that's something I'm very proud of. And but for injury, you would have played under him at a FIFA World Cup, Career Japan 2002. Was that the toughest moment of your career? Yeah, because, you know, I'd actually, we played Sunderland for Niall. I think it was Niall's testimonial. You know, I think lovely gesture from Niall. I think he donated his his money and to, to charity and various things, which is a great example of him as a human being. But uh, we beat Sunderland 3-1. I scored, I set up a goal. And that was the last game before we went to the World Cup. I was in the final 22 and um, and I went back to the hotel and I asked, said to the gaffer, I need to speak to you because I, I tore my, my groin in March. So we're now two, three months down the line. And I just said to Mike, I can't go to the World Cup. And he's like, why? I said, I'm, I'm just, I'm struggling. I'm really, really struggling. And I basically just burst into tears and he gave me the biggest hug in the world. And um, it was a really special moment, but a re probably the saddest moment of, of my footballing career. But it wasn't fair on me to take somebody else's place. And it wasn't fair on me to be selfish and think about me and take away somebody else's dream. And... Um, and I remember watching the World Cup, Stephen Reid, I think, got called in instead. And I think he came on against Germany. And I remember being really, really pleased for him and also relieved that it wasn't me in that situation because I just wasn't fit. And I ended up having an operation about a month later. So Mick McCarthy, clearly a big influence on your career, both as a manager and a player. Other notable leaders that you played under, Dave Jones, Peter Taylor, Neil Warnock, Missed a couple in there. Who else have I got on the list? Roy Evans, of course, signed you at Liverpool. Which of those, or, or maybe someone that I haven't mentioned in terms of managers, were sort of key influences on your career? They, they all leave something with you. They're all lovely, lovely people, first and foremost, I have to say. I've never worked under a manager. Maybe one you didn't mention who I didn't particularly like, but they're all really, really good people. Um, Dave Jones was massive. I, I was actually with Dave um, couple of weeks ago for the first time in 20 years actually which was really really lovely to see Glenn Hoddle I was a huge fan of an outstanding coach um, really really impressive guy and and Paul Jewell was just a massive influence because I, I, di I didn't know Paul I'd never met Paul I've never asked him this but I always had the impression and this is the problem with media I always had impression that he I don't know whether the categorise or pigeonholed me, but he's seen me in a certain light, which I don't think was really, really, it wasn't bad, but I don't think it was massively positive. And my first conversation with Paul in the club, he called me in to tell me I wasn't playing on the Saturday. I was like, oh, this bloody hell, this is great. And we ended up sitting there for about two and a half hours just talking about football. And we became really, really close in a professional relationship. And from that, he just kept saying to me, are you doing your badges? Have you done your badges? And I had no interest in going into coaching or doing badges. And he basically just badgered me to do my badges. So because of Paul, who's an incredible guy and a lovely guy and a brilliant, brilliant manager, it's because of him that I'm sat here today. So something I'm really grateful for. And I think what happened in the end was, I've never asked Paul this and I could be wrong, but I think I'm right. I think he's seen a lot of me in his own journey. And I think the the guiding, the guidance that he'd had and the education from senior people that people had given him to get him into where he was, I thought he looked at me and thought, I'm going to do for you what somebody's doing for me, which is a lovely gesture from him. I think one of the names I missed out there was Neil Warnock and he managed you at Very briefly. Crystal Palace. Very briefly. Yeah. 
I mean, he's now into his 75th year, I think, isn't he? And, yeah. and, and manager of Huddersfield, certainly at the time of recording. Um, could there be a Mark Kennedy leading out a, a team when he's 75 years old? Oh God, I'd just be happy to be chatting to you. <laughs> um, let's talk about your playing career then. Over 450 appearances, which is quite some going really. What was the highlight for you as a player? Um, lots of highs, lots of lows. Um, the one thing I'm really, really proud of is not so much any specific game or win or promotion or individual accolade. The thing I'm really, really proud of is the fact that I've played football for 20 years, which in my head was a magic number. And, you know, the, the league games were 460, whatever, but with cup games as well, I managed to make over 500 games. I mean, anybody who plays 100 games should be really, really proud of themselves. At whatever Levels don't mean anything to me. The, they're just your ceiling and where you are. You know, Ronaldo's miles better than me. Brilliant, good luck to him. But anybody who can carve out a period of time in whatever job or whatever environment, I'm, I, you know, should be very proud of themselves. So it's probably those two things I'm most proud of and not a promotion or a big move to Liverpool. Playing for my country was just incredible because I'm, as I said, a big football fan. But the thing I look back on most fondly is the 500 appearances, over 500 appearances and, and having longevity in my career. When you look back and you think of the fact that you essentially signed for one of the biggest clubs in the world at such a young age, do you think people from the outside don't necessarily give you and your playing career quite the credit it deserves? Because when you start at such a big club, it's very difficult to maintain that level of you know, it's very difficult to maintain that sort of level of, of playing, isn't it? And do you even need that credit yourself? Are you bothered? No, I don't care really, to be honest. I don't, you know, I've said no one's died. I've got a lovely wife, three amazing kids. I love doing what I'm doing. I'm very lucky and privileged. So I don't want or need pats on the back. Discussed it earlier on. I'm just not a fame hungry person. I don't, I've got enough confidence in myself. I don't need somebody to tell me that. I've done well. I think your career is your career. Whether you've underachieved or overachieved, you get what you get. Um, you know, I'm not into reading other people's quotes, people like Vince Lombardi and that. And, the, you know, what you get out, what you put in kind of a thing. Whether you're a politician, you work in a restaurant, whatever it is you do, you want to be an entertainer, a footballer, president of America, you you, you get out of life what you put into it. Um I think a lot of people probably see my career, I, if I'm being honest, as probably underachieving. Could it have been better? Probably. I don't know. Um, I think when you start at a certain level, I, I get that. But I think to play football for 20 years and play over 500 games is, is justification for me. But also, I also look and think, well, actually, maybe, maybe you haven't underachieved. Maybe that was just your level. So maybe you weren't as good as people thought. We've gone 25 minutes or so without really mentioning the club that you are in charge of now. And as it is a We Are Ems podcast, we probably should do so. So uh, let's look back. May 2022, you are named as head coach of this club. You said you were honoured to take the role. So far, we're over a year into it now. Has it been everything you'd hoped, everything you wanted? And now I'd say it's more, I'd say it's more actually because um, the perception of what it is 
you know, you know, it's a big job, you know, it's a big challenge, you know, everything's going to blow up in terms of potential profiles, being in the foreign line, being the, the focal point, standing on the touchline, being the guy who everybody's looking at, whether it's media fans, board, I don't know, director of football, Liam, Jez, lovely, lovely people, but just all the multiple disciplinary teams within and outside of the club, the, the outer environment, the community that we sit in. But it's actually 10 times bigger than that. It's so much more bigger than that. I mean, I, I chatted to Liam, I'm quite open with Clive, like the the pressure is phenomenal. It's it's crazy, but... There's something you thrive on. Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's it's the best It's the best experience of all. I mean, I suppose we, we've... I'll say it now because we've talked about it, so I don't have to bring it up. Like, played football for 20 years, but it, for me, this is another level. Because of the element of responsibility because of what you've learned in your career? I would say definitely that. Um, I just think the challenge is immense. There's so, so much that can go wrong. There's so much to try and control. There's so much you have to do to get one outcome. Um, and there's so, it's not me, by the way. There's so many people involved in it. So there's the surrounding environment. Like, you know, we've just left the training ground. We've got huge, big staff, lots of players. You look at... You know, I got to know Alfie last year working with the media team and it wasn't working and now comes in and be part of it. Things like this, trying to chat. There's just so many people involved. It's just so many people helping involved in so many areas and departments and spheres all trying to do one thing, win a football match. And I just think it's it's just incredible. And they've all got to walk together and they've all got to come and connect and intertwine. And, and you need a little bit of luck as well. It's, it's amazing. We're now into the new season, of course, but if we look back at last year and last campaign, it was a brilliant end to it, wasn't it? At what stage did it really begin to feel for you like a like a Mark Kennedy team? Um, it's a really good question. I was always really, really confident, and I still am in what we're doing, but I still don't think we've got to anywhere near where we've got to go. And the reason for that is it's constantly ever-evolving. And when I spoke to Liam in particular, when I came in, like we always talked about having at least three three transfer windows, which was a relief because I thought I've got a little bit of time here. He said, you give me three. Um, and I think it takes time to change things and evolve things and, and put your own stamp on things. Um, I suppose from January onwards, or well, I'd say February the 1st onwards, is when we had a, if you look at the points total we we had from then on, things really kicked on. But I, I think there was a number of reasons for that. You know, Ethan coming in was massive. We had Lewis Monsma for a for a period of time. Teddy hit a lovely run of form. And the rest of the lads were really starting to connect and to gel. And there was a real belief in the team. When we beat Ipswich 1-0, I'd spent a lot of time saying to the players, if you can just believe in yourself as the same as what I believe in you, you've got a great opportunity to do something special. And when we beat Ipswich away, it was a relief for me because afterwards I was like, you see, I told you basically. And then we had Sheffield Wednesday, I think the week late. And I was like, we got to, and I think when we then drew it them, the team really started to believe. So I just felt by the end of the season, the team had, because by the end of the season, I think we'd fourth most clean sheets in the league, fewest defeats in the league, one of the best uh, goals conceded records. I think the team started with 40, we're nearly 60 games down the line. So it's not luck anymore. It's not, you've not got, anybody can go and beat Ipswich on any given day. Not very often. 
But I really felt when we be, when we beat Plymouth away two two nil in in April. I, I can say this now because it's finished and and they've gone and promoted their own. We could have beaten five nil, but when we beat Ipswich one nil, we rolled a look and and I thought we deserved it. But it was at that point everybody was well in the right to say well. At some point, somebody's going to beat them because they were on this incredible one. But when we beat Plymouth 2-0 away, who'd only lost one at home, that was us. We deserved everything we got. That that was that was the Lincoln team that I thought we were. A lot of the clubs that you played for in your career had very attractive styles of play, especially at a time where direct football and getting it long was such a big thing. Has that had an influence on you now as a coach and as a head coach because it's something you're very bullish on not just winning and I know the Ipswich one is was the one where you mentioned anything could have happened but actually winning and winning well and giving the fans which we'll come on to shortly the fans something to be proud of particularly on those away games yeah 100% and it was what what's really surprised myself is that the thing that I'm most proud of last season is actually how good we were off the ball I didn't see myself as a an out of possession, I don't want to say defensive coach because we're not a defensive team, but last year we were probably a mid-block counter-pressing, counter-attacking team. I'd always seen myself as a as an attacking offensive coach, an attacking offensive player. Um, but I think what we did really, really well rec- last year was recognise what we had, maximise our qualities, hit our deficiencies really well. And I say that respectfully because every team's got deficiencies. And understanding the league, the budget, what we can have, what type of style we have. So I think we did that really well. But, you know, I want people to look at us as a as an, attra- as an attractive team. But I think last year, I, I just didn't feel last year when I came into the club, the, the squad was really strong. And I, I text Clive last week and I, I just said, you know, the squad were coming back into today, last week is on another level to the one we came into last season. And, and as I said, with Ethan coming in, um, Lewis had a nice run, Teddy hitting form and various other people. I think we played some really good football at the back end of the team a season. And I think with the new signings we've brought in, I do expect to see, you know, uh, not, not a different style because I don't want to blow people away. We're not going to turn into Man City, by the way. But we want to be as offensive as we can. Music to the chairman's ears, by the way, when... And the head coach and the manager's texting him saying that, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, and you know, and uh, I'm pretty black and white guy. You know, I don't try and BS people or I'm not looking for a pat on the back. Um, but one thing I have to compliment the club on, they're really realistic and balanced. You know, they don't say to me, if you don't get promoted, you're going to sack you. These are the parameters. These are the KPIs. Like they give you an opportunity to be successful. Like they're very, very fair. They're not unrealistic. Um, and when I when I spoke to to Liam on the Tuesday before the last game, the first game of the season last year against Exeter, and we had a private conversation, it was really reassuring to hear where he felt the team and the squad were, as opposed to somebody saying like, you know, if we're not, and we have had a conversation, rightly so, through the season where we felt we should have been higher and we were underachieving, mm-hmm. but I was always confident, you know you know you don't watch a movie and after 20 minutes go this is rubbish you know watch the whole movie and make a decision at the end of the movie and I always felt at the end of the season we'd be able to look back and say we had a positive season 
Is that the key to success, particularly in the modern day? When you look at Brighton and Brentford, possibly as the sort of the go-to at the moment in terms of how to model a football club. Okay, you occasionally get those that have some instant success and maybe, you know, go up and go down immediately. But do you think that longevity and, you know, opportunity to to develop and build something is the way forward now? I think it's very important. I mean, if, if there's two ways of looking at it, right? If you keep changing your manager or whoever it is every five minutes, well, how do you know if it works? You've not given it time. And also, all you're telling everybody else is you're incompetent of what you do. You know, a lot of clubs get away with that. Like, I'm not bothered. Watford, you know, they've had multiple promotions, but they have God knows how many how many managers. So they're not creating anything for the future, are they? You know, they might have had a bit, couple of instant short-term successes, but they're not building for the future, are they? So I think whoever it is to give people time is important because how do you know, you, you know, how can something be successful if you don't give it time to grow? Um. And the club are very big on that. The club are very, something they really hit home to me. It's it's one of the, I had a good job. I was assistant manager at Birmingham. And really, it's a brilliant club. For all the flack it gets, it's a brilliant club with brilliant people inside it. Passionate club. And then I was just going to say, an outstanding fans, which we'll come on to about our fans. You know, and, and, you know, I was just about to sign a new deal there. But the reason I wouldn't, I wouldn't have left that job I would have left it for very few clubs in League One. And I say that respectfully because there's probably 20 clubs that might go, we don't want you anyway. And I'm fine with that. I can live with that. But I'd I'd had a chat with my agent about trying to arrange, you know, coffees with people so you can have a one-to-one speak to people. So maybe somewhere down the line, a job comes up and they know who you are and stuff like that. And, um, And his number one club, believe it or not, was Lincoln. Um, and I, and I, I'm saying that to you openly because I need to be clear on something. We weren't speaking to each other while anybody was in charge. It never actually happened. But when it eventually came about that Lincoln had an interest in me, I remember ringing my agent going, you're not going to believe who's rang me. So that was really lovely. And, I, and, I, and I lo- I'm very proud to be able to say that when we spoke as a, as a, as a team, myself and my agent, the one club we were, there's, there's lots of clubs in their league, by the way, but the one that we felt was the perfect fit was Lincoln. And I, I think it's, I can say that now that I'm here, so I'm not making up trying to get in somewhere. Interesting how fate falls, isn't it? Um, we've talked a little bit about leadership and what you've learned, but I just want to touch on it a little bit more because for you, are you someone that always is looking to self-improve or are you one of those? Because of course, I think there's the book mindset, isn't there, where you've got your closed mindset and you've got your growth mindset. Now I'm imagining that the fact that you're a, a manager or a head coach of a of a League One football club, you've got a pretty much a growth mindset. But is that something you're always trying to do? Self reflect, look how you can learn and put it out onto others. Do you even have time to do that? Um, I want to be the best I can be. Wherever that everybody's got a ceiling, I'll have a ceiling. The one thing I'm comfortable in is I don't know where my ceiling is, which I believe there's a lot more to come. And then you'll you'll get to a level and you go, well, that's it. And I'm fine with that, and I can live with that. I, I don't mean I'm accepting of this is my ceiling, it's not very high. I'm accepting of the potential of what I've got or where I can get to. Um, but I'm I'm incredibly driven and ambitious and I want to be the best I can be. If, I, if I'm a League One manager for the next 10 years, I want to be the best League One manager I can be. If I'm going to work with the under-15s team, I want to be the best under-15s coach in the country. So it doesn't matter what I do. I reference this a lot with the lads. I love golf and I play golf. And I practice a lot because I want to be the best golfer I can be. 
you know, and I said to the lads in the, in, in at the end of the season, you know, I this is my handicap. I'm going to go away in the summer and I'm going to do my utmost to improve my handicap. And it actually went up 0.2. And the reason it went up 0.2 is because I put so much pressure on myself to be better and my golf went the other way. So there's a big part is managing expectations as well. But I want to be the best I can be in whatever I'm doing. We've mentioned the fans a little bit, so let's come on to them. You are always so quick to praise them or to mention them, whether it's win, lose or draw, particularly after a game. Obvious question, but why? Why always so much emphasis on them, even when it's, I know football without fans is nothing, as they say, but it is so often about the team. Why so much emphasis on the supporters? Because no club can survive without the fans. Without the fans, you've got nothing. Now, we're very player-centred when we talk to um bringing players in it's a, it's a huge thing it's not about me it's always so whenever we coach and are down the training ground whatever we do is always about the players for us but above that is the fans so without the fans you've got you've got absolutely nothing the club can't uh, it can't grow it can't exist um and it has such a huge effect i've seen it at macclesfield i was really peed off with the EFL, what happened to macclesfield because and I'm, I'm slightly jumping away because I remember ringing the EFL. You know, I had a really good relationship with a man and I, and I liked him and I thought he was a good guy, but what he did with the club was a different thing. And I remember ringing the EFL and saying, you're, you're worse than him because you've allowed him to do what he's doing. Now you're after him, but you're going to destroy a whole community and a whole club and a whole hundred years of history because you want one guy out, but you're the guy that's let him run the club. So that was a really good bad experience for me and it was actually brilliant to remind you of how important football clubs because a lot of footballers just come in and they play football and they do the jobs and they go home their own little bubble but actually if you spend a day walking and get on the train and travel with the fans or you know get on the coach and walk through the ground and walk out with them you know it's it's their lives it's everything to them you know and and a lot of people don't see that so but i have to compliment um Liam in particular, I keep mentioning Liam because I work really, really close to him. Like our club are very, very, and I'm going to use the word obsessive in a positive way. It's fans, 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 fans. So what you see is not an act. It's not, we have to do this. It looks great. Like the, the club are huge. It is all about the fans. And they made that clear to me when I came in. And thankfully, I was a big part of that and a big um, advocate of that. So I spoke to a player the other day, actually. You know, one of the best experiences I've ever had in football was uh, twice this year, believe it or not, uh, Peterborough away, we lost 4-0. And I was quite nervous going up to clap the fans because I think it's really important. We show our appreciation every game. And I was thinking I could get battered here. You know, rightly so, by the way. We were just being beat 4-0 by our rivals. But actually, all through the game, they just kept singing, 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 singing. And we went over. And honestly, the hair stood on the back of my neck. That They just give the lads the biggest evasion, singing songs, singing name. And the same with Sheffield Wednesday away. And I've been looking to play football and have good experiences. But ironically, one was a defeat and one was a draw at Sheffield Wednesday. Those two things, please God, if I'm here in another X amount of years, they're the two things that I'll always remember in football. I guess those are the moments that bring people together, bring clubs together, fan bases. And, you know, I guess that shows just how much it means to the people. They're willing to look past the result, 
look at the process, horrible term though it is the process, but look at that and see what was trying to be done. And clearly for you, did that sort of, particularly the 4-0 loss at Peterborough, did that soften the blow slightly? Because it must have must have been a hard day. It must have been a hard feeling for you. Yeah, it, it actually had a massive impact on us because um, it, it was after, so we, we were 4-3-3 that day. Um, it was on the way home, on the way home after the game, you know, chatting about the reaction with the fans and stuff like that. It was like, we have to do something different. Like we can't, we have to give them something more than that. We have to do something different to change the result, particularly away from home. When you get support like that, you know, it, it's impossible for it to last forever if you keep getting beat 4 nil every week. So what are we going to do differently where we can actually give them something where we're getting the same appreciation, the same response, the same um, value for each other, but now you're going home happy as well. So that was, that was probably quite a pivotal time for me as a coach on self-reflection, quick self-reflection, and going, what are you going to do? And the decision was post that game was when we play away from home, we're actually going to change the shape, play five at the back or three at the back, whatever you want to call it. Um, and it just so happened that the, the next big home game was Bolton away. We we worked all week on playing 3-4-3. Three, three, we lost 2-0. We had a great week in training. We lost 2-0. I remember saying to the lads after the game, if you perform like that and we take on the messages and we can do what we can do going forward, we'll be really, really successful. Even though we'd lost the game, I could really see the, what we could achieve off the back of that. But it all came from the connection with the fans after the people. And that's how, it, that how, that is how that change of shape started. And that must excite you so much for what could be achieved. If you're getting a standing ovation after a 4-0 defeat at Peterborough, and I'm sure you would be the first to say that that wouldn't happen if you were to lose 4-0 every week. But still, if you are getting that sort of applause, that sort of those chants, if you like, after the game, what could happen if this club goes in the championship? It's exciting. Yeah, it's definitely, it, it really, I mean, it's just, it's really got the ability to grow. And I think it's proven, if you look at the attendances of the club 10 years ago, and where they are now, it's chalk and cheese. You know, as you drive in, you can see the development of the stadium already. It's 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 ever evolving, it's ever continuing. If you look at the 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 capacity week in, week out, it's one of the highest in the league. You know, we're we're often there's no point having fifty thousand stadium if there's twenty people in it. Um, but there's a real connection between you know, I, one of the big sells to players coming here is the fans. You know, the club are brilliant at presenting to players, but one of the big things we talk about is the value of the fans and what they give to the team. And I've said this many, many times, and I and I mean it. There's no way we'd have had a result we had last year without the fans. Um, that derby away was amazing. We've been going for over 40 minutes, Mark. One more question. How far can this club go? And of course, we're, we're at the early echelons of this particular season, but what's, what's a good season for you? Um, I know what a good season is for me, which um, I'm not going to say, but by the way, it is good. The fans would be really, really happy. But to answer your question of where it can go, I go back to ceilings. I don't know where this club ceiling is. And I think that's a big compliment because sometimes we look at players, manager, staff, people, environments, wherever it is, and you go, that's it. That's it. Absolutely maxed out. And I don't know where the ceiling of this club is. 
but I think there's considerable growth to come. I mean, ultimately, we we want to get to we want to play in the championship, and I think the club can definitely achieve it. Um, but with the people in the background, the people upstairs, the people behind. Now, the biggest compliment I can pay them is they always put the club before themselves. I think a lot of boards, owners, chairmen don't do that. This is a club. This is we've got a group of people that always put the club before them. And the reason I'm saying that is they want best. They want what's best for the club before themselves. And I think that's a it's got a great chance of of, of delivering what they're trying to deliver. Here, here, Mark. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the first ever We Are Imps podcast. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.